All right, it's great to have you with us this morning. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors with uh, New Hope, and I, I uh, get a, the privilege of serving with uh, college-age and young adults here. I, I love what I do, and we, uh, we started that ministry about two years ago. It's called The Greenhouse, and it's really been exciting to see God kind of develop that and grow it. Um, it's also interesting, over the last couple of weeks, as we've been uh, having Mark teach and, um, and Michael and then me this week, we have all kind of, all of our messages kind of dovetail together. And I think it's really interesting to see how God is kind of orchestrating things. So I'm excited to see what he's going to do through this time this morning with you. And uh, let's pray and we'll dive in, okay? Father, we're, we're thankful today to think about a song like that, that we just, that we just sang, that we, that we are free. We're free because of Christ. I remember what it was like to be a slave. And I remember what it was like to be enslaved to my sin nature. And to be just, to, to, to live in this world now in a way that I don't have to obey the flesh anymore is awesome. And God, we pray that you would, you would use our time this morning to encourage uh, us, that you would build us up, God, that you would take your word and you'd make it come alive in our lives. God, we're here, we're yours. We, we, we belong to you. We, we want to, to learn from you. We want to be your disciples. And so we, uh, we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, as Mark's been working his way through uh, the book of Romans um, and, and taking a, a breather here and there, I've been filling in and I've been working my way through this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica. And I've titled this series, The Church at Her Best. The more and more that I get a chance to study a, a this letter, the more and more I'm encouraged by this group of people and, and what Paul wrote to them. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick summary of what we were looking at here because it's been a little bit of time since I've been up here. The, the, the first thing we see is these people turn to Jesus from idols. And their repentance was so strong that churches throughout this region of Macedonia, hundreds of miles in area, felt the aftershock of the work that God did in this city, in these people's lives. And so Paul wrote this letter to encourage them to continue on in their walk with Christ. They had experienced affliction and opposition and persecution. And so Paul is like a cheerleader, just saying, hey, keep going. Don't stop. And it's one of the only letters in the New Testament where Paul's not writing to correct a church because of screwed up doctrine or practice or both. And so this letter is pretty phenomenal. And the more and more that I read it and I study it, the more encouraged I become. Because if you think about it, we're surrounded by mess and negativity. I mean, it seems like everywhere you look, there's a failure. In the church, there's failure. Outside of the church, there's a moral mess. There's chaos all over the place. But we see in this church that it's possible to live in a way that honors God and impacts the world around us. And so instead of looking at all the chaos, God has given us an example here to follow. And so the section of the letter that we're looking at today is both fascinating and it's, I think it's super challenging. The challenge that we're going to see shortly is that Paul doesn't mince words. He speaks to two different groups of people. People who are followers of Jesus and people who aren't followers of Jesus. And our culture today doesn't like that. 
In our world today, no one's wrong. Everybody's right. All spiritual roads are okay and acceptable. And you can't say one is true and all the others are false. And so when you look at, the, at what Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're getting into a section of scripture that really flies in the face of what our culture teaches. So if you're new with us, know this. We preach God's word. We allow God's word to inform how we're to think and live rather than our culture. God's word is our standard. We rank ourselves under this book, which means we submit to what God says. We yield to what he says in his word. It's our authority. And so as we look at this section in this letter, Paul is going to give us kind of four key thoughts that we're going to focus in on. And so let's just jump right in. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1. This is what Paul writes. And so this is what we read. He says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so Paul's first thought for us is this. We're to be fully aware about the imminent return of Jesus. He starts out this section saying that concerning the times and seasons, you guys already know all you need to know. You're in the loop. You're dialed in. But he goes beyond that to say that they are fully aware. The words fully aware in the Greek are the words akribos and the word oide. The word akribos means accurately and carefully. And the word oide means to know. It means to know something personally or to have firsthand familiarity or acquaintance, and especially as it relates to an experience with a person. I think that's fascinating. So when you, when you put these two together, you get the sense of, that these people not only had spot-on information, but it was more than just head knowledge. It was personal in nature. Their awareness of Christ's coming wasn't just up here, but it was also in here. There was a, a connection, the 12-inch connection between the head and the heart that these people experienced. And as I thought about that this week, I had to stop and ask myself this question. Do I live with that kind of awareness of Jesus' return in my life? How about you? Does the thought of Christ's return ever cross your mind throughout the course of your day or your week? Does hearing a teaching on this topic stir you up? I mean, do you get excited about the fact that one day you're going to be with him? Would you be in the same camp as Paul who said it would be better to depart and be with Christ? He said it would be far better than to stay in this life. Would you agree with the psalmist when he wrote these words, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Many in the early church would end their time together with the word Maranatha. John actually, he finished the book of Revelation with that phrase, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do you long for his appearing? Is there a head and a heart connection for you with the second coming of Jesus? 
the parousia, as it's referred to in the Greek. If there isn't, you might want to explore that a little bit. Because in my opinion, something's off. Somewhere along the way, you've bought into a lie. That this world and this life is your home and this is all you've got. When we come across verses like this one, I think it's our tendency to just kind of fly by them. But I think it's better to sit in it for just a little bit. I got, God has something he wants to challenge you and me with through his word. The word itself tells us it's like a double-edged sword. And God uses it to, to, to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And so I think God uses his word to oftentimes just expose us, to reveal what's really going on in our thinking and in our, in our desires. Well, what else? I just want to give you two other quick observations from this first section. The first one is this. Discipleship was at the heart of the early church's DNA. See, Paul was very purposeful with what he wrote to this church. You know, he was giving instruction to help these, these young followers of Jesus endure affliction well. I get the impression from the way that he writes here that when he would connect with another guy, let's say again, he met with him at Starbucks, this is what they talked about. It was part of his helping a young believer grow up in the faith plan. He did everything he could to instruct these young Christians in the faith. And as I was studying this stuff out, I had to ask myself this question as well. Is this part of what I talk about when I meet with guys at Starbucks and I'm trying to help them kind of grow up in their faith? Is this front and center in my mind as I think about making disciples? I think if the Apostle Paul was with us today, he would say this needs to be one of the things that we instruct young Christians in and remind the mature about. That's the first thing. The second thing is Paul uses this phrase, the day of the Lord. What's that all about? Well, this phrase carries with it kind of a dual emphasis. If you were Jewish and you heard that phrase, your mind would explode with Old Testament references. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was the day of judgment. On that day, the Lord will punish evil. And the wicked among the nations will face a terrible day of wrath. And so for those who are outside of Christ, this is their reality. For the unbeliever, the day of the Lord will be your worst nightmare kind of experience for eternity. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I kind of shy away from talking about this attribute of, of God, the wrath of God. It's not the, the first thing I talk about maybe in my conversation with, with other people. But the reality is we all deserve wrath. We've all offended a holy, righteous God. And it's, it's hard for people to grasp this. But apart from the gospel of Jesus, the Mother Teresas of the world are no better off than the Adolf Hitlers of the world. Because the truth is, we all fall short. But the day of the Lord isn't just a day of wrath. It's the day that justice will have its way. Wrongs will be righted and God will avenge the wicked. 
Now, over the last couple of days, I spent some time with a detective who works in Gary, Indiana. It's kind of the armpit of the Midwest. And he shared stories of evil that when I was alone caused me to just weep. I couldn't get my arms around what he was talking about. He shared a story about a three-year-old little boy whom his parents starved to death. I couldn't fathom that. Why? What was the motive? The motive apparently was that they liked their older daughter more. And then this little boy, for some reason, they just didn't like him. So they starved him to death. See, when I hear stories like that, the human heart longs for justice to prevail because we're created in the image of God. And again, apart from repentance and faith in Jesus, the unbelieving world has no hope. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? In the New Testament, Jesus is the Lord whom God's appointed to judge the world. And so the day of the Lord is the day of our Lord Jesus. And for the Christian, for the Christian, this day will carry with it a major sense of deliverance. Jesus' return will be the most glorious day ever. And so we, have, we see wrath for the unbeliever. And we see deliverance for those who've been washed by the blood of Christ. Which brings us to verse three. Paul continues by writing this. He says, while people are saying, hey, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so this is the second key thought we see in Paul's writing here. Jesus' return will catch the unbelieving world by surprise. So Paul starts out by writing, while people are saying peace and security, and when I hear that, I think that's not all that different than our day. That sounds a lot like what I hear in our culture today. We live in a world that for the most part only thinks about today, right? Our culture woos all who live within it into a sort of a slumber. We live for today. We think about what's right here and right now in front of us. We have our eyes set on just the immediate rather than the future. Peace and security. That's what people wanted in the first century and that's what they hunger for today. Peace and security. How are my earthly investments doing? Where's my checking account balance at? How are my, how's my 401k tracking? You know, how soon can I retire and live in a mosquito-infested swamp known as the Sunshine State? <laughs> we can't look up and see the eternal. And when I speak about our culture, I'm speaking mostly about those who haven't been regenerated by the Spirit of God. But even for us who call Jesus our Lord, we'd have to admit that at times we lose track of the eternal for the temporal. If we're honest and a bit self-aware, at times we chase after the same worldly ambitions that our unbelieving friends chase after. And so when we read a passage like this, God has something he wants to speak into the Christian's life as well as the unbeliever's life. 
And so Paul uses this analogy. In verse 2, he talks about the return of Jesus catching people off guard like a thief in the night. It's the same analogy that Jesus used when he talked about his return. But now Paul uses another analogy. And this one is a little more nuanced. He compared the return of Jesus with a woman who is pregnant and then all of a sudden she goes into labor. Now as a dude, when you're talking about pregnancy, you got to be a little sensitive, right? I mean, the reality is for us guys, we are clueless. Isn't that right? I mean, my wife, I've experienced five pregnancies. And what I mean by that is I've watched my wife grow a five children inside of her, and give birth to five babies. My, over, my contribution to the, the pregnancy was relatively insignificant in the grand scheme of things. The thing that makes this pregnancy analogy so powerful is that there is time baked into the process. A full-term pregnancy lasts roughly 280 days, 40 weeks, 10 months. That means that there is a lot of time to prepare for a baby to enter into the world. Time for ultrasound images to be printed and and put on the refrigerator. Time for us to discover the gender of our child. Time for baby showers and, and baby rooms to be painted and cribs and changing tables to be frustratingly assembled. There's time. See, the picture is significant because as a woman's pregnant, As her pregnancy progresses, she looks more and more what? Pregnant. You said it, not me. (laughs) In other words, there's no element of surprise in the fact that this baby is coming. Now, I know that Paul's point is very straightforward. When you're pregnant, you don't know when you're going to go into labor. But you know that at some point, this baby isn't going to live inside you anymore. And as the day approaches, there is a growing anticipation of what's to come. It's called nesting, right? You kind of want to get things figured out in your house and get everything sorted out. And so when we hear this thief analogy, it's really straightforward. But I wonder if there might be something more that Paul is getting at here. The, the thief comes, we get it. You're asleep, you get robbed, you wake up, it's, something's gone. But with the pregnancy and labor analogy, I wonder. I wonder if, you know, the thief coming and, and, and the, the, the going into labor part, Paul's directing that toward the unbeliever. This is the person, again, who's going to be totally caught off guard. They're going to be clueless about the return of Christ. But I wonder if part of the pregnancy analogy is actually directed toward us, the Christ follower. You and I are not to be caught off guard. We know that eventually labor and delivery are going to happen. It's just a matter of time. The train is coming. Things are progressing toward delivery. It could be any day. One quick thought before we move on. In another letter that Paul writes, he says that that because we know what it means to fear God, we try to persuade men. And what Paul's getting at there is that because we know what the day of judgment will be like, we do everything we can to try and persuade our friends and our family. We know the thief is coming. We know that labor is just around the corner. And so why wouldn't we say something? Hey, 
You're going to be robbed tonight. Just wanted to give you the heads up. This is the heart of the New Testament. We do everything we can to help those who are outside of the faith come to know Christ. My prayer is that that is who we become more and more as a church family. That we become the kind of people who take last of risks for the people around us. Because the thief's coming and for the pregnant woman, labor is just around the corner. Okay, verses four and five. Paul continues. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And so Paul's third thought for us is that who we are, our identity, drives what we do and how we live. Look what Paul says here. He says, you're not in darkness. You are different than the unbelieving world around you. You're children of the day and you're children of the light. All these statements, again, Paul making are, are identity statements. This is who you are. These are statements that define you as a Christ follower. The Greek for the word light is this word phos. And it's the sphere dominated by righteousness and, and, and goodness and, and the knowledge of God. And the Greek word for the word day is hemera. And it's the sphere dominated by righteousness and goodness. And especially this idea that it's the realm of, of the allies of God. And so what Paul's saying is, this is who you are. This is what your life is kind of dominated by. These realities. I love the way one commentary writer puts it. He says this, children of light are true children of God. They've undergone a transformation that makes a new life, a life in the light, inevitable, not just preferable. Godliness for true sons of the light is not just a matter of appropriate actions. In other words, it's not just doing the right things. It's not just following a list of to-dos and to do the things not to do. It's an outgrowth of your essential nature. In other words, it's an overflow of your relationship to God. This is who you are. And the reality is who you are drives what you do and how you live. I love the way another New Testament writer says this. He says this, Beloved, we are children's, God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, second coming of Christ, Perusia, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is who you are. And then this is how you're to live. If you were to look at much of the New Testament, you would see an intimate connection between your identity and your actions. Another classic example is Ephesians. Ephesians chapter, chapters 1 through 3 are all about this is who you are because of what Christ has done for you. And then Ephesians 4 says, therefore, because of what Christ has done for you, this is how you ought to live. And so you are children of the day and children of the light. You're not of the darkness or of the night. And because of this reality of who you are, Paul says this in verse 6. He says, so then, 
So then, let us not sleep, but let us keep awake and sober. And so this idea of keeping awake is literally what is expected of a watchman who must not sleep at his post. In other words, God is giving you and me a responsibility. And he said, I want you to stay awake. I want you to be alert. I want you to be sober. You have a responsibility. I want you to fulfill your responsibility. I like the way Warren Wearsby talks about the idea of awake and sober. He says to be sober-minded means to be alert. To live with your eyes wide open. To be sane and steady. To make the contrast more vivid, Paul pictured two groups of people. One group was drunk and asleep, while the other group was awake and alert. Danger was coming, but the drunken sleepers were unaware of it. The alert crowd was ready and unafraid. Isn't that right on? Now, I've got a confession I need to make to you. I listen to country, country music. I know it's kind of this mixed you know, thing. Some people are going to love you, and some people are going to hate you when you say that. And I'm cool with that. Uh, there's a song on Country Radio now called Whiskey Glasses. I don't know if you ever heard it. It's by a guy named Morgan Wallen. And the refrain in the song is this, see the world through whiskey glasses. And essentially the song, what it's all about is I need to drink because I've got all these, this pain that I've experienced through broken relationships. And so, you know, if you had to pretty much summarize country music, that would be pretty much right, right it. That's exactly what it is. And the idea of that song is the exact opposite of what Paul is encouraging these people and you and I to be about. But to be sober-minded and awake is hard. Because it means that you will feel pain. You will be sad. You will mourn. But your mourning won't be like someone who mourns without hope. See, the unbelieving world puts on whiskey glasses because they don't have hope. They don't know what to do with the pain and the hurt. And so what they do is they line them up, line them up, line them up, knock them back, knock them back, knock them back, fill them up, fill them up, fill them up, because she ain't coming back. And so we, we have the opportunity to show them. But what that means for us is that we're going to have to walk through pain and hurt so that we can show them what it looks like to have Christ in us and with us as we suffer. Paul says that we're to be awake and sober, and then in verse 8 he says this. He says, since we belong to the day, again, another identity statement. It's who you are. You belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. So we're to be dressed and ready for action. The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Well, what does that mean, the hope of salvation? Well, to quote Wearsby again, he says this, the hope of salvation means the hope that salvation gives to us. There are actually three tenses to salvation. The first one is the past. I have been saved 
from the guilt and the penalty of sin. This is the idea that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is the idea that you have, your sin has been paid for in full. You are, you've been rendered, there's been a, a verdict rendered, it's not guilty. Justification by faith in Christ. That's the past tense. The present tense is I am being saved from the power and pollution of sin. This is the idea that the Holy Spirit comes into our life when we become a Christian and he's at work sanctifying us, kind of cleaning up uh, our lives, helping us to move in the direction of Christ. And then the future, the third uh, tense, I shall be saved from the very presence of sin when Christ returns. The blessed hope of our Lord's return is the hope of salvation. It's a helmet that God gives us to protect our, our head, really our brain, our thinking, our mind, which is where the battle rages. And God has given us hope as our helmet to help us in our thinking and our beliefs. Which brings us, there's the train. I told you it was coming. The train's coming. Why couldn't it come? I was just hoping it would be the timing, which is be perfect, but... Anyway, what, what, bring, what this, this brings us to Paul's fourth and, and final point for us, and it's this. Paul drops the gospel bomb. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And so the reason we won't face the wrath of God is because God already took his wrath out on his son on our behalf. That's the heart of the gospel message. Jesus died so that he could take your sin away from you and give you his righteousness. He wanted to make you perfectly right with a holy God. He wanted to give you a new identity as a child of the day and as a child of the light. And he wanted to make you someone who can look forward to his return. Paul kind of does a play on words in verse 10 where he says whether we're awake or asleep. Because just a couple verses ago, he said, don't be drunk and asleep. But at this point, he's talking about whether we're physically alive or physically dead. When Christ returns. And the bottom line of all this is, is that if you're in Christ, you can have complete confidence that you will not face the wrath of God. Judgment is done. For you, that took place on the cross. Christ's return will mean your deliverance. But if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, as your Savior and Lord. I say this in, in, with, in the most sober way, the most gentle way I can say this. For you, you have no hope. There's nothing for you to look forward to except judgment. And so I would plea with you, be reconciled to God. Today could be the day that you come to Christ and you confess to him that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And that you repent and you turn to God 
and you allow God to take your sin away and give you his righteousness. And that you trust that what Christ did for you when he died on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection was enough. It was enough to pay for all your sin for all time. And if there's anything that I can do to help you in that process, I would love to have you come up and chat with me after we're done here. And so Paul ends this section like this. He says, um, encourage each other and build each other up just as you are doing. And so that's his encouragement to us is that we're to do that with each other. Hey, reminding each other about the truth of the fact that Jesus is coming. He's coming back. And so I want to end with just three quick applications for you. The first one is this. Live with an eternal perspective. Life is short. Give God the best of your life right now. I got one more Wearsby quote I got to give you. This is just phenomenal. He says, live, he says this, live expectantly. This does not mean putting on a white sheet and sitting atop a mountain. But it does mean living in the light of his return. Realizing that our works will be judged. This isn't the great white throne judgment of whether you're in or out. This is the bema that Mark talked about a couple weeks ago. You're going to be judged based on what you do as a Christian. And so this is about rewards. That our works will be judged and that our opportunities for service on earth will end. It means to live with eternity's values in view. That's the first one. The second one, invest in the eternal. Give God the best of your, your time and your treasures and your talents right now. When you invest in the things of God, you have made the wisest investments you could ever make. Every other investment will fade, but your eternal investments will pay eternal dividends. I love one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Luke chapter 16. Jesus says this, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. In other words, use your money to win people and build relationships that are gospel-focused. So that when it fails, your money, it's going to fail. They may receive you into eternal dwellings. And so I just picture what's going to happen is we're going to use the resources that God's given us to influence the people around us. They're going to get to the kingdom before we do. And when, when we show up, there's going to be high-fiving and chest bumps and all that stuff. And it's going to be a huge celebration. Okay, the last application is this. Invite others to consider the eternal. And so again, let's risk more for the sake of others. Let's risk rejection. Let's, let's risk being misunderstood. Let's risk how people view us for the potential, the potential that someone would say yes to Jesus. I'm a fisherman. So I go fishing. I expect to catch fish. Jesus, when he looked at his disciples, he said, I want to make you fishers of men and women. And I think when God goes fishing, he expects to catch fish. That's on him. Our job is to show up. The train's coming. It's going to be like a thief in the night or like a pregnant woman who goes into labor for the unbelieving world around us, but not for those of us who are in Christ. 
If you're in Jesus, you're a child of the day and you're a child of the light. And because of that, we are to be alert and sober. And with that, we can pray. Along with the early church, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do we do pray that. We pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, we see that what you have for us is way better than what we have here and now. And so, God, we pray that you would use this church, use us as people. Help us to be the kinds of people who risk our lives for the sake of those around us who are outside of Christ. God, help us to be the kind of people who grab a hold of our identity and we live out of it. And we just thank you today again for Jesus. We thank you that you have given us the hope of salvation. One day soon and very soon, we're gonna be with you. And it will be a glorious day. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here this weekend. Hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.